we're working our way through the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, we've come to that section of the Scripture where Jesus is talking about judging. We introduced this passage last week with a broad exposition, and the title of the sermon was Judge and Then Judge Some More. Uh, If you'll recall from last Sunday, as we look at the whole thing in context, we understand that there's a very tense sort of statement that's being made here, and, and it's sort of paradoxical. Uh, Jesus says, don't judge, but then as he goes on to explain what he means, he's talking about the way that we judge, and then he concludes the passage talking about not giving what is holy to the dogs and not throwing pearls before swine. And so uh, we hear this sort of quoted to us all the time. The world sort of is, is real quick to throw this, this statement back in our faces, judge not lest ye be judged. But as we look at it in context, it seems that what Jesus is saying is more along the lines of, measure twice and cut carefully. You you know, once you make a cut, it's done. And so uh, Jesus seems to be saying you need to be very careful. Not all judgments are forbidden, but in the way that you exercise your judgment, use a great deal of caution and make sure it corresponds to to what the scriptures are saying. So that's what we saw last week. This week I want to focus very specifically on the verses in the middle of the text uh, where it talks about the speck and and the eye and, and removing specks and logs from your eye. And so if you would, let's, uh, let's pick it up. We'll begin in Matthew chapter 7. We'll read verses 1 to 6. And we'll pray and then we will get to work. So if you would, look with me. Math- I'm sorry, Matthew 7, 1 to 6. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we love you, God, and we thank you so much for speaking to us through your word. Lord, we know that as Christians we're called, Lord, to sit and to discern the world around us and to reflect carefully upon our walk and the walk of our brothers and sisters in this room. Lord, we know that the implicit message of this passage is that we're to be engaged in the business of removing specks and logs So, Father, help us to do that. Help us to live lives that are pursuing sanctification, that are striving, Lord, to be more and more like you. Father, help us to make war on sin wherever we find it in our own hearts. We pray that you would open our minds to understand, that you'd illuminate the text before us, and that you would strengthen the faith in our hearts, give us the courage to obey. Father, we ultimately seek happiness, and we know that it's only found one way. So give us, Lord, the understanding to pursue you. We love you, Christ, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. With the yell of horror, the door breaks open, and into this very intimate private bedroom gathering rushes an entire mob. She's been caught red-handed, literally in the act. She's dragged from the bedroom, grasping at a coat or a garment as they're dragging her out into the street. 
they're screaming and yelling and shouting at her and telling her that she deserves to die. And in fact, according to their law, according to their custom, she does. In Deuteronomy 22, it makes it very clear in the Old Testament that if you catch a woman or a man in the act of adultery, they are to be stoned to death. Both the married woman and the, husband, and the man or the married man and, and the woman, it doesn't matter. Both parties in that transaction are to be executed and executed by stoning. And so fear grips her heart. She knows she's caught. She's caught red-handed. She knows she's guilty. And this crowd is dragging her literally straight from the bedroom to the temple precinct. She doesn't know what's about to happen, but she's pretty sure she's about to die. Into the temple courts they rush, and then there's, at the far end, a young rabbi. He can't be more than 30, 33 years old. He's one of the younger rabbis in the, in the temple, and they drag this woman before this young teacher. She's not sure who he is, and they say to him, teacher, this woman was caught in adultery, and the Old Testament law says that she deserves to die. What do you say? And Jesus just kneels down in the dirt and begins to scratch and write. Well, that is certainly not the response they were expecting. She is shaking. She knows that whatever is about to happen, it rests on the verdict of this man. He stands... And he says to all of the mob gathered there in front of this woman who's probably just clutching at a robe around her, let him who is without sin throw the first stone. And then he kneels down and he begins to scratch in the dirt some more. I'm not sure if you would have heard the sounds of the marketplace or the city sounds of life going on in Jerusalem around you. I'm not sure if it was a complete and total hush that was there in the temple that day. I'm not sure what it would have been like. But you know, she is terrified because she knows what she deserves. And he's not saying much. He's just writing in the dirt. And this is the crowd of religious elites, spiritual superstars, so the question in her mind is probably, okay, yeah, somebody's going to throw a stone. The question is really, who is it that's going to throw it? And as this whole crowd is gathered around her, she doesn't know if it's going to come from the front. She doesn't know if the stone is going to come flying at her from the back. Her whole life hangs in the words that this prophet just spoke and the decision of those gathered around her. Now, you and I are all of us in this room the same as this woman. We've all lied. We've all cheated people at times. We've all done wrong. And the scriptures are clear. The wages of sin is death. It's what you and I rightly deserve in the face of a holy God. And we don't know what Jesus is writing in that dirt. And we don't really know what that crowd was thinking. But what we do know from John chapter 8 is that by one by one, she could hear it, dull thud, as the rock dropped to the floor. One by one, that mob began to leave. 
Now that is amazing. That is absolutely spectacular. She has sinned. She has committed adultery. She deserves to die just like you and I deserve to die. And yet somehow this amazing, miraculous man has talked the mob down from its vengeance. Jesus stands up and he looks her in the eyes. And perhaps this passage of scripture comes to her mind from Isaiah 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And so there they are, standing in the midst of a pile of stones. She knows she deserves to die. He knows that she deserves to die. Out of that whole crowd there, Jesus was the only one without sin, which meant the person who should have thrown that stone first and who could have righteously thrown that stone first would have been Jesus. And yet the prophets are clear from ages gone by, over and over again the scriptures have said there is a one coming who will take away the sin from Israel. Could this be the one? He asks her a question. Is there no one left to condemn you? And in the phrase of a question, maybe a prayer, we're not sure, but we see the inkling of faith beginning to emerge as she says, no, no one, my Lord, no one. And he says to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. That's from John chapter 8. Neither do I condemn you. The text before us is saying that all judgments, in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, and he's living it out in John chapter 8, and his statement is this, all judgments, all decisions, whether they are right, even whether or not they are according to the word of God, are ultimately provisional. Because there is a true judge who will judge all things at the end of time. And as he confronts the crowd, he brings before their attention this simple fact. The only one that can judge with a righteous judgment is the one that is without sin. That nullifies the verdicts of everyone in that crowd. Jesus is saying that he ultimately is the final judge. And this is the truth for all of us in this room. Now, we're not saying that any of us is perfect. We're not saying by any stretch of the imagination that we're not supposed to judge. But what we need to remember as we approach this text that the final judgment, the ultimate judgment, the true judgment will come when we stand before the Father in heaven. And the way that we escape that judgment is the same way that this woman in John chapter 8 escaped it. She saw before her a young rabbi and she put her faith in him. No one, my Lord, But guess what? There's still one standing before her. And as she is facing him, the question is running through her mind, what are you going to do now? And he says, I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more. Now, the first statement is, I'm not going to condemn you. I'm not going to banish you to hell, and I'm not going to execute you right here and right now with rocks. We love that statement. 
For the Christian, Romans 8, 1, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. For you and me in this room, if we will repent of our sins and place our faith in Jesus Christ, there is no judgment before God. He looks at us and he sees the blood of Christ, what Jesus did on the cross, and he declares us as pure as if we had never sinned. He sees Jesus, he doesn't see us. As we stand before a holy God, there is no judgment. And if you will place your faith in Christ... The good news of the gospel is that there is no judgment. You are free. You are released from the guilt of your sin. That is a wonderful, powerful statement. Neither does Jesus condemn you. But let's hang on to that second statement. Go and sin no more. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is saying, Judge not, lest you be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you measure, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Sin, there is what theologians refer to as the noetic effects of sin. Uh, that's a fancy word referencing our mind and our intellect. When we have sin in our lives, it clouds our judgment. And so all judgments that you and I might make, though there is a degree of righteousness, I mean, we are called to make judgments, to sit in discernment on things, and we, we do that as we're guided by the scriptures. But at the end of the day, all judgments and all, all verdicts that you and I might render, they're ultimately provisional because to some extent, we all have sin in our lives, and sin clouds our judgment, which means ultimately the truest judgment is found in Christ. So Jesus is saying very clearly here, be cautious the way you judge, the way you pronounce your verdicts, the way you arrive at certain decisions, that's the standard that you're creating for yourself when you stand before God in heaven. Now, you'd think there that if that's the case, we should, as the world says, just go around saying, don't judge, don't judge, don't judge. You know, don't sit in judgment on anything. But we know that that's not possible because of what he says here in the next two verses. And this is really what I want you to see today. He says, verse 3, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye but do not notice the log that is in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, the scriptures aren't saying logs and specks are fine. Just ignore them. That's not what Jesus is saying. He is saying when it comes to removing specks or getting logs out of people's eyes, you need to engage in this activity, but there's a right way to do this. Now, in order to really bore in on this text here, I think it'll be helpful for us to go over to Luke chapter 6. I'd like you to flip there with me. Luke chapter 6, we're going to look at verses 39 and following. This is the same teaching, so if you want to make your way over there, in Luke chapter 6, in verse 39, we'll, we'll pick it up in verse 37. I want to show you there's a clear correlation here. There's two different gospels. There's Matthew and there's Luke. It's the same gospel, but it's two writers telling the same thing from slightly different vantage points. They're both inspired by the Holy Spirit. They're both completely accurate. But the two different writers, Matthew and Luke, they include slightly different details uh, as they are led by the Spirit. Now, it's the same, it's the same basic teaching. If you look in verse 37... Jesus is teaching, again, it's the, the Lucan account of the Sermon on the Mount. He makes a statement, judge not or you will be judged, okay? And then if you jump down and you look at uh, verse 41, he says, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye, okay? So it's the same basic teaching, it's the same basic pattern, but you'll notice there's a little bit more detail given here in this passage by Luke. I want you to go back to verse 39. Luke provides some interesting insight, 
which I want us to see today. In Luke 6.39, he makes a statement. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? No, obviously not. They're both blind. He says, will they not both fall into a pit? It's got to be the shortest parable I've ever read. But that's it right there in a nutshell. He told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Well, no, because then they'll both be like, ah, and they'll both fall into a pit. Like, they're not going to get anywhere. They'll end up hurting themselves. And he goes on. A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Okay? So those are the two verses that provide insight for us into this whole business of logs and specks and how we go about removing logs and specks. We see this in Luke. It's missing from Matthew, but it's here for us to grasp. There are two questions I want you to look at, the why and the how. You'll notice in verse 41, and we, I, we briefly mentioned this last week, in verse 41 he says, why, and this is a question that speaks to motive or heart condition. He's asking, what is the reason behind this activity? That's what he's saying. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? So question number one is why. Question number two is how. So the first question is referencing motive or the reason behind a certain behavior. The second question is questioning even the possibility or the feasibility of whether or not you're actually able to do something. How is this possible? He says, how can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? Hypocrite, first, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck that is in your brother's eye. Now, if you'll jump back to verse 39, I want you to see this. We've got two examples here. Number one, blind men. And number two, certain teachers. Now, I think that most of us, as we're reading that passage, we're, we're probably a little bit thrown off. I, I'm sure you've heard it quoted many times before, a, a disciple is not above his teacher. And, and it's been quoted to you from the perspective of you know, you have to perfectly follow Jesus and you'll never be above Jesus and you need to study Jesus and be like Jesus and when you're perfectly trained, you'll be like Jesus but you'll never surpass Jesus. Well, that's true. But that's not actually what the verse is saying in context. In context, as we look at the passage as a whole, you'll notice he starts off with judge not, lest ye be judged. And then he talks about this blind leading the blind and falling into a pit and this teacher business. And if you jump down to verse 43, he's going to talk about good trees bearing bad fruit. And he's going to talk about false teachers, okay? And he's going to start to address false teachers. So as Jesus is speaking to the issue of removing specks and logs from people's eyes and following blind men, he makes this statement, a disciple is not above his teacher. What he's saying here, then, is that the guy you follow, you'll be like him. And the deeper, more subtle warning is this. Is the guy you follow a hypocrite? Blind people following blind people will end up in a pit. So the first thing you're asking yourself is, yeah, that's crazy. Why would a blind person, why would a person who has known the limitations of physical blindness his whole life and knows how dangerous it is and knows how difficult it is to get from point A to point B, why would a person 
who is fully aware of what it's like to be blind choose to follow a blind guy? Why would he do that? The obvious implication is they're not going to get anywhere good. They're going to end up in a pit. Why? Now, as you meditate on this with me for a second, you might choose to do that. Why is beyond me. Why would you follow a guy that's just as blind as you are? You know he's blind, and yet you're following him. It could be, as you're attempting to rationalize this in your own mind, that you're thinking to yourself, yeah, I know that guy's got some issues. I know he's not really living the Christian life in its truest, purest sense. But, you know, I'm not going to be like him. I'll take the good that he offers, and and I'll just sort of ignore the bad, and and I'll, I'll still follow him. And Jesus' response to that is, how? Why would you follow a blind guy? And then assuming you could rationalize it, how are you going to actually escape the harmful, damaging effects of his leadership? Because, you see, you're not actually able to be greater than your teacher. Every disciple, when he follows his teacher, when he is perfectly trained, will be like his teacher. That's what Jesus is saying. So when it comes to this business of logs and specks and getting our spiritual sight sorted out and addressing the sin in our lives and trying to live lives that are holy and honoring to God, the person that we follow makes a lot of difference, all the difference in the world. He goes on, he says, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye but not notice the log that is in your own eye? And the implication here is that you, as you're following this person and you're engaging the same degree of hypocrisy that he's engaging in, you're quick to see all of the failures and all the shortcomings of the world around you. And yet, at the same time, you probably have those exact same failures and those exact same shortcomings in your own life. You're quick to see the specks that are out there, but you are willfully blind to the log that is in your own eye. There's a question of why. Why would you pursue a person that you know, why would you follow a teacher that you know is living in blatant and rampant hypocrisy? Why? Well, maybe I'll be better than them. But then the next question is how. How is this person ever going to be able to help you? How is this person ever going to be able to get you to a place higher than where he is when he's got a log in his eye. And and so the clear warning to us here today is, yes, we're called to deal with those specks in our our eyes. All of us have issues and, and sin in our life that we have to address. Wisdom requires that we seek out the right teacher to help us address them. A number of years ago, I, uh, <clears throat> I was in Texas, and I'm drinking tea, and it's not sweet, and so I get a little package of of NutraSweet, the sweet and low stuff, and I, I rip it open, and I put this, the, the sweetener stuff in my, in my tea. And I'm having lunch with a guy, he's my neighbor, and I'm trying to build a relationship with him so that I can lead him to the Lord. Now, my neighbor, he's this guy that is, like, super skilled with a cigarette. He, he's a smoker, he's a chain smoker. I mean, in the, in the time that I was having lunch with him, he probably blew through a whole pack of cigarettes right there before me in the, in the hour and 10 minutes that we ate together. And he was also having a beer. And I'm telling you, the man has skills, okay? 
He, he's the kind of guy, he's a cigarette in one corner of his mouth, and he's like puffing away like a chimney, and he's swigging and taking a drink of beer at the same time that like smoke is like coming out of his mouth. And I don't know how you do that. I, I have no idea. I know it requires a great degree of lip dexterity, you know, like there's a lot of, because he would, he was also eating and puffing away at the cigarette the whole time. And he's the kind of guy, you know, he has a fork and he kind of stabs his salad and he kind of, you know, works the cigarette over to the other side of his mouth without ever using his hands. And he puts the food in on this side and he's chewing and smoking and chewing and smoking at the same time, right? He's that kind of guy. So, you know, this isn't his first time to smoke a cigarette. He's been doing this a while and he's very talented at it. I take the sweet and low. I rip it open, and as I'm about to pour it into my glass, the eyebrows on his face kind of arch up, and he's kind of like looking at me, and I'm, I'm, I'm kind of like, oh, oh, what? you know, I'm thinking maybe I've done something wrong, you know, is there something hanging out of my nose? I don't know. Like, he's kind of surprised looking at me, right? And he says to me, no joke, this is what he said. How dare you eat that stuff? You know that sweet and low is going to kill you, Right? while he pulls out another cigarette and lights it up. And I'm thinking to myself, hey, chimney, you know, like there, there's other problems here that we need to address. I, I'm not denying that the sweet and low is bad. They've done studies. You eat a whole bathtub of sweet and low in one setting, there's like a 50% chance you're going to get cancer or something like that, okay? I know that it's true. I know that it's wrong. You shouldn't eat sweet and low in your tea. You shouldn't have, uh, don't get me wrong. There's truth to that. And I, I accept that. And, you know, we want to be healthy. We want to live healthy lives. But it begs the question... Mr. Chimney, I am happy that you value my life. I mean, I am. But it, it kind of begs the question as a whole, do you value life in general at all? Because it's true, the sweet and low is bad for you. I think that it's more true, I don't know if I could say that, that you know, chain smoking a whole pack of cigarettes in an hour and 10 minutes of lunch is probably worse than, than the sweet and low, okay? So, so he says to me, um, don't eat the sweet and low. And he, he was quite insistent. He got up, took my tea, and dumped out and got me a new, a new glass of tea, okay? That's how concerned he was. Now, I was dumbstruck. I mean, I'll be honest. I was just like, whatever. I just ignored it. My goal in that moment was to build a relationship with him and try and, try and share the gospel. So I didn't really, I didn't really get into all that. But I, I, to, to this day, it has never left me. You are so concerned for my sweet and low, and you are killing yourself with alcohol and cigarettes. Why? Do you see how that question just jumps out at you? Why? What, what's the purpose? You want me to preserve my life. That's great. I, and if I give up my sweet and low, maybe I'll live an extra 20 years, and I'll go to be like 85, 90 years old. You'll be dead way before me. So while I'm happy that you want to preserve my life, to, to what end for you? Why would you care when you obviously don't care enough to be around to spend that extra time with me? Why does it matter to you? And, and I don't think for one second that an individual who can't manage the addiction of cigarettes and alcohol could ever possibly help me manage the addiction of sweet and low. I don't think he has the capacity. And I think if he were to be gut honest, he'd say the same thing. I don't think I have the capacity to help you with your addiction. So why would you say something to me? 
Shortly after this, I'm, again, I'm going to school at Dallas Baptist University, and uh, I've told you before how I'd watch the Trinity Broadcasting Network. It's like this television channel with bad, the bad preachers who have mostly bad theology. There's a few good ones, but for the most part, they're, they're kind of, it's this 24-hour day, seven-day thing where you can tune in and, and listen to quasi-heretical preachers preach. Um, and um, so, like, you know, if I'm bored and I've got nothing better to do, for a number of years, I was trying to, like, imitate Joel Osteen and be able to, like, imitate him perfectly. So I'd always flip on TBN to try and, like, see if I could get the smile down that, that Joel Osteen does. Anyway, I flipped on uh, TBN one night just for, just for fun, and I'm listening, and there's this guy on TBN, Trinity Broadcasting Network, and he's very concerned about homeless orphans in Sudan. You know, there's no one there to take care of them, and there's no one there to, to provide for them, and they're starving to death. And he's dressed in a three-piece, I don't know what the cost of this suit would be. I mean, I'm thinking it's in the thousands of dollars. He's imploring me to give money for the poor of Sudan. And the sleeves, the, the cuffs of his shirt, kind of come out of the jacket a little bit. And I, and I happen to notice as he's imploring me for my money that he's got diamond cufflinks that are like, I mean, I, I don't, they're, they're huge, okay? They're like, I don't, and I don't know what the cost that would be. I'm not a jeweler. I can't gauge these things. They looked real. And they looked like they had to be at least $5,000 cufflinks. $5,000 piece of jewelry to snap your cuffs together. You got two of them. You're flashing me $10,000 worth of jewelry on your sleeve. And you're worried about children in Sudan starving to death. Now, don't get me wrong. I am also worried about children in Sudan starving to death. I want them to be fed. I am prepared to give money for these kids to get some food and water. But how? Now, notice the question. How is it possible that you're able to say to me that you're worried for the children in Sudan when you've got these $10,000 little trinkets on your sleeve? If you're really that worried, if the heart condition in your life is such that you are begging me for money for children living in the Sudan, then if that were really true for you, that you are so concerned about whether or not they could eat and drink clean water, why would you not just strap, strip those things off your shirt sleeves and pawn them on eBay? I mean, you could at least easily pony up seven or $8,000 right there. Rather than going on doing this whole production and begging me for money, I do not have $10,000 worth of cufflink jewelry. I don't even have cufflinks. I mean, I'm short sleeve, you know, so I, I can't even, <laughs> apparently can't even afford a whole shirt. But um, <laughs> sorry, I'm joking. I apologize. You, you notice the question here, the questions here are quite provocative. The truth, spiritual truth, can only be properly administered by people whose hearts it has impacted. What Jesus is saying here is, you do need to address those sin issues in your life. You need to. And because, and he uses the illustration, you got this speck in your eye, and so your eye is watering. It's blinded your vision, or you've got the two-by-four in your eye. You've got the log in your eye. It's blinded your vision. 
And if you've ever had that happen in your life, you know you can't see clearly to take the thing out. It's watering. It hurts. It's irritated. There's no joy in it. You're sitting here and kind of trying to force it open. And it hurts. And you keep wanting to rub it. You need somebody who's going to come to you who can see clearly to take the speck out. That's the whole implication of the passage. And so what Jesus is saying is the person that you need in your life to help you take that speck out needs to be a person who is straight and honest and sincere about the sin in his own life as well. There is no other way. There is no other way. People flashing $10,000 worth of cuff, diamond cufflinks are not as concerned about the children in Sudan as they pretend to be. And people who are chain smoking a whole pack of cigarettes and drinking a lot of alcohol tell you that the Nutrisweet's bad for you. They're not as concerned about life in general as they ought to be. And so why would you follow those people? And why would you seek counsel from individuals like that to help you get a speck out of your eye when it's clear there's a log in theirs? See, blind people leading blind people end up in pits. We don't get anywhere that way. A number of years ago, there's a book <clears throat> written by John Eldridge called Wild at Heart. There's a real problem in 21st century modern evangelical Christianity in which because of the culture we're living in we are basically emasculating the men in our churches trying to make them more, more feminine more soft it, it's, it's obvious and so a number of individuals have come out in the last 10 years that have written books that have been wildly popular and hugely selling uh, John Eldridge writes this book Wild at Heart, it's sold about 3 point Five million copies, I think, in, in the last 10 years. It's, it's a huge bestseller. And um, men all across North America are just eating this thing up. In fact, I'm willing to bet there are quite a few of you in this room that have read that book. And, and what John Eldridge is saying is basically that you, uh, you need to just be a guy. I mean, that, I can just boil the whole thing down for you in, in just, you know, five, five easy words there. Just, just be a guy. Just be a guy that honors the Lord. And I resonate with that message. And there are a number of other preachers who've preached that same message. And so we, we are turning to books like Wild at Heart and various other books, and, and we're trying to understand what it is that's wrong with us as, as men, and we're turning to these people and seeking their counsel and their direction, and, and we're looking for them to teach us, okay? We know we're broken on some level, and so we're asking these guys who write these wildly, hugely successful, best-selling books to sort of pastor us and, and shepherd us and, and help us to to be a guy, right? I never read the book. Uh, you know, I've probably had somebody give it to me or, or recommend it to me every year for like the last 10 years. I just, I never got around to reading it. And so this last week I was at the convention and I had a lot of spare time on my hand, a lot of free time. So I, I decided to pick it up and read a copy. No, I really did. I, uh, <laughs> so um, anyway, I'm reading this thing and um, I'll just quote you. This is from page 33. He's encouraging men to take risks, to be risk takers. That's the sort of the defining feature of, of manhood, be a risk taker. There is something much more risky here than we are often willing to admit. God did not make Adam and Eve to obey him. No, no, he took a risk, a staggering risk, a risk with staggering consequences. He let others into his story, and he let their choices 
shape it profoundly. It's not the nature of God to limit his risk. God does not cover his bases. Now, the whole chapter is advocating that men need to be risk takers, that we need to be adventurous. I like adventure. Uh, I know Mike Jones and Elena, they like adventure. They went on like a 40-mile hike yesterday, so it's good to be adventurous. He's seeking to ground that risk-taking sort of spirit of adventure in an attribute of God that doesn't exist. He goes on, he says, it is clear, let me find it, Um, let me find it here. It's not the nature of God to limit his risk, it is not in his nature to govern, to cover his bases. And he goes on and he says, as with every relationship, there is a certain amount of unpredictability and God's willingness to risk risk is just astounding. It It is clear that God is willing to risk far beyond what any of us would do if we were in his position. He makes a statement, it is clear that God is willing to risk far beyond what any of us would do if we were in his position. And I just got to tell you, that's not at all clear to me. Between pages 31 and 33, he goes on to talk about how God is a risk taker and God is just sort of like, you get the sense making it up as he goes. Uh, The problem is, now I'm not saying that we shouldn't be men, that guys shouldn't just be guys. And I'm not saying there's something wrong with turning to people who can teach us how to do that better. But the problem is we're turning to people to teach us how to be who God wants us to be, who they themselves don't know who God is. Because here's the problem with God if he's a risk taker. That means he doesn't know the future. That means he isn't completely certain what the outcome of these things are going to be. And that means that when we take risks, quote unquote, if we're taking risks with a God who's taking risks, who doesn't know the future and isn't certain what the outcome is going to be, then there's no ultimate hope at the end of the day that everything is going to turn out the way God has been saying it's going to turn out. If it's true what John Eldridge is saying about being a risk taker and that God is the ultimate risk taker, then how do we know revelation is going to happen the way that it says it's going to happen? How do we know we're all going to end up in the grand celestial city in the new Jerusalem with the Father? You see, God is not like us in the sense that he's just gambling. He's like some wild poker player up there just, I'm putting it all on black or whatever. You know, he's not doing that. You know, he is in total control. Now, don't misunderstand me. The book resonated. It sold off the charts. 3.5 million copies. It's obviously hitting a chord. There is no doubt that guys need to learn how to be guys again, okay? We, we totally get that. And, and this is hitting a need in the community. The problem is that it's not actually helping us because it's confusing and distorting truth about God. And there's a lot of good things in this book. I, I read about ha- more than half of it. But there are a couple of very troubling statements as well. And so when we turn to people to teach us, to help us, We need to be sure that as we turn to these people and we ask them to help us get specks and logs out of our eyes and to teach us truth, we need to make sure that they themselves fully understand truth. You can sing to a Jesus who doesn't know the future all day long, but the God that I worship and the God you need to be worshiping is the God that's in total control because here's the thing, church. There's going to come a moment in all of our lives because of the sinful world in which we live, we will experience tragedy. We will experience heartache. We will have a loved one who died unexpectedly in a car crash. We'll have another loved one who's diagnosed with some sort of a disease or some sort of a sickness. And in those moments when life catches up, 
when we come face to face with the reality that this is a horribly broken world, can you really turn to a God that says, didn't see that one coming? Can you really place your hope and your confidence in a God who's just as much in it for the fun and the adventure as you are? No, you can't. You can sing and worship to that God all you want, but the God that we need is a God who's in total control so that the adventures and the risks that we take are governed by his sovereign purposes, which will always come to pass, which will always come to fruition. In other words, God isn't calling men to be risk takers. He isn't calling men to go on totally blind, reckless adventures. We are called to a life of sacrifice, a life of risk but a life that is ultimately promised reward when it is conformed to his purposes. Now, we like that. We like to read these books in the privacy of our homes, and, you know, away from life groups, away from church, away from Christian involvement. We, we like to hear these things because we know that these people are far away. They don't know us. I don't know anything about us. They were writing this nice book. It, you read it, and I read it. It made me, it, you know, it has, it has good stuff in it. It has, it has, I mean, I felt warm and fuzzy just reading it. You know, I get, I'm not, I'm serious. It was well written, and I enjoyed it. But there are a couple of troubling things in there that skew the whole perspective. But I could easily, without being involved in a church, and without being involved in a life group, without being involved in one-on-one -on -one personal accountability relationships, I could very easily just go out and read books and listen to sermons online and be taught some good stuff and get spiritually fed. But the problem is, even when I think I'm getting spiritually fed because I have indwelling sin in my life, my own discernment of how well I'm doing is skewed. Now, you can listen to some really great preachers. There's a lot of them out there. I listen to a lot of different guys online. But they don't know me. They're not in my life group. They can't confront me when I'm caught red-handed in a lie. They can't challenge me with inconsistencies and hypocrisy in my life. They can't. They got like 10 million people subscribing to their podcast. They got like 5,000, 10,000 people attending their church. They don't even know the people in their own congregations very well, let alone me on the internet 10,000 miles away. And so as we approach this text in which Jesus is saying, take logs out, take specks out, deal with sin, address this issue in your life, pursue sanctification. The whole context is that we have to do it together in a life group, in a church, with friends. And the problem is, because of the culture we live in, in which it is so easy to get both good and bad teaching, we are content using our own judgment, our own discernment, as flawed as it may be, to feed ourselves spiritually. And it's produced a culture in North America, a Christian culture in North America, that has no room left for rebuke or correction. I don't need you. I can just hang out in my own room, listen to my podcasts on the internet, and reading all my top-selling, national best-selling books. I don't need to be corrected. 
and I don't need to be rebuked. You look at Jesus as he's going through the, the, the Gospels, doing his ministry, living his life. These guys, the Pharisees, the, the scribes, the, the super, spiritual superstars of his day, he rebukes them incessantly. I mean, it's nonstop. He calls them fools. He calls them blind guides. He calls them vipers. He calls them snakes. The worst rebuke you find that he offers them is that they're children of the devil. Now, this is hardcore correction. You're living in sin. You're a child of the devil. Now, that's going to get your attention, but this is Christ, the one we are all aspiring to be like, correcting and confronting unbelief and calling it out for what it is. But do you know what the harshest rebuke is that you find in all four of the Gospels? Do you know who it is that he reserves the strongest criticism for? Peter. That is exactly right. You know, as far as he goes with the, with the Pharisees and the scribes, he calls them children of the devil. You know how far he goes with Peter? They're talking, they're having this conversation, and Jesus is like, I'm going to go, and I'm going I'm to accomplish God's will, I'm going to do God's purposes. And Peter says, jeez, eh, get over here, like, come over here. And he pulls him aside, and, you know, you're not going to go and die on the cross. That's, that's ludicrous. And Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. Throw it, throw it up there, Mark 8, 33. Get behind me, Satan, exclamation point. He says, you're not setting your mind on the things of God. You're setting your mind on the things of man. Now, here's the thing. God calls us to be a certain way. Jesus is the living word of God. He's like Bible in the flesh, okay? And so he's saying, as the living word of God, this is my plan. This is my program. This is what I'm doing. Peter says, eh, I'm not on board with that. And he says, Satan. Now, if this is 21st century modern evangelical Christianity, and this were like a life group, and Jesus is the life group leader, and the 12 disciples are like the guys in his life group, and he's reading the Bible, he's like, this is how it's going to be. And one of them said, nah, I don't think so. And he says, Satan, do you think that would go over well in our life groups? I'm just asking, like, do you, do you think we would respond well to that? No, no. We'd go over in a corner, and we'd be all sad. We'd be like, man, like, it wasn't, it wasn't what he said that was so wrong. It was, it was how he said it, and, you know, like... <laughs> I just, I don't like, I don't like him confronting me, you know. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go listen to my podcasts on the internet and read my books. I'm out, guys. I'll see you. I don't need this church. That's what it would be. In fact, I think that's what it is too often. And if that's your attitude, you cannot possibly live this scripture out in your life. You can't do it. And what's worse is you say, it's not so much what was said, but how it was said. That just brings further condemnation on yourself. Well, what you're saying there, if you could just unpack that statement, is not only am I not going to listen to appropriate correction in my life, but I'm going to justify my willful rebellion against the word of God on the basis of it didn't sound good to me, it didn't come to me the way I wanted it to. In other words, if God's going to bring correction in my life, he's got to do it my way on my terms. And then that just really begs the question, guys. Are we living lives of repentance? Are we actually aggressively pursuing lives of holiness? If your heart is to be like Jesus, if you really want to live a life that is honoring and pleasing to him, 
you're going to put yourself in a life group. You're going to put yourself in a church. You're going to come face-to-face with an accountability partner. And sometimes they're going to correct you. It's going to happen. Now, I have, on several occasions, many, many occasions in my life, been corrected. And I'm just going to tell you right here, never once have I ever been corrected in which when the correction came, I felt like warm and fuzzy and good inside. Okay? It just never happened. And I can tell you with a fact, every time I was corrected, I was offended and upset initially. That's the nature of the sin in our hearts. So, I have this question sometimes because I, as a pastor, you know, sometimes I have to go and visit with people and, and have these frank conversations. And, and that, it's always, like, I've never had a conversation where the guy was like, thank you for rebuking me. Like, I just, I just want you to know. I've never had that. It's always been a little tense. There's always been a little bit, like, they get their back up a little bit. It's always been that way. And I've asked myself, I've actually asked myself the question, how could I approach this topic this thing in your life in such a way that you would be happy for it. You know, I, I hear the, that all the time. It's not so much what was said as how it was said. And I, I do reflect carefully on, on how you can say something in such a way that people are grateful for it. But the truth is, you're misunderstanding the sin in your life. You cling to it. So no matter how gentle, no matter how loving, no matter how graceful you may bring that correction, you'll never like it. You'll never enjoy it. Can we, as a church, here at Bridge Baptist Church, make room in our Christian walk for rebuke and correction? Can we? Is that possible? How do we even come to the cross in the first place if we're not willing to be humbled and rebuked and confronted by the power of what Jesus did for us there? How do we do that? And if we do it, if we make that first step and we embrace Christ and we repent and we say, I repent of my sins and I place my faith in Christ, is that just a one-time deal? I just repent today and then tomorrow I go back to living my life the way that I've always done? Because if that's the case, then... We've, we've misunderstood his purposes. No, no, no. The Christian life is every day we live lives of repentance. Which means we have to make room for correction, we have to make room for rebuke, and we have to understand it will always be difficult. There will never be a happy kumbaya correction time. There will always be difficult, unhappy conversations. It was that way with the woman caught in adultery. Jesus says to her, neither do I condemn you. And listen to me, church, you are not condemned. You are not condemned for your sin. But then he says, go and sin no more. So so there she is. She's walking through the streets of Jerusalem, headed home, kind of grasping at this, this thing that maybe she was able to wrap around her before they yanked her out of the bed. And as she's walking, go and sin no more. Go, Where is she supposed to go? Have you ever really thought about that? When Jesus says go and sin no more to the woman, she leaves. Where is she going to go? She's going to have to go home. She's going to have to go home to her husband. 
She had to go home to her kids. And in this day and age, her, her husband's family, her in-laws would have been living with her. Maybe her in-laws also would have been living there. Her, the adulterous relationship, her illicit lover, he probably just lives down the street with his parents. Jesus says, go and sin no more. He removes the guilt of her sin, but he does not change the fact of her sin. And even though as she stands before God and she is guilt-free, cleansed and forgiven before a holy and righteous God, and there is no condemnation, you think she's going to get that at home? Go. Where? Where am I supposed to go? Do I go to another church? Do I go to another life group now that I've been corrected? Do I find a new man to marry and call my husband? When Jesus says go and sin no more, she's got to go home because any other option, any other choice that she might make, it's going to result in sin. And he's clearly telling her not to do that. Go back to your husband, go back to your children, and go back having been publicly exposed. He removes the guilt of her sin, but he never, ever changes the fact of her sin. She still sinned. She's free. She's not condemned. She's not judged by Jesus. But here's the question. We can't live a Christian life. We cannot be people who trust in Jesus if we fear the opinion of men more than we trust in the statement and the promise of God. It's a fear transfer. She's got to transfer her fear from men and the way that people saw her and the way that people look at her and the way people are currently thinking about her. And she's got to place that fear into the eyes of God. And that's where we all struggle. This whole spec and moat and log business, getting logs and specks out of our eyes, a person's response to correction and rebuke tells you a lot about whether or not they're trusting in who Christ says they are or whether or not they're really needing your approval and they're really worried about their reputation before you. It's a fear transfer. You have to take your fear away from what other people think of you, take your hope, your faith, your trust, and your good reputation, all of that sort of thing, and that also has to be surrendered into the arms of Jesus. That's where we struggle. That's why we have difficulty being corrected. I have such good news for you. Romans 8.1, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So if someone brings correction in your life, it's not condemnation. You're not He's not throwing you out of the church. He's not throwing you into hell. He's not saying you're not good enough to be a Christian. What he's saying is Jesus has set you free. Let's start living like free men. Let us flee the sin that is holding us. And the Bible says that's a happy thing. Every time I've gotten something in my eye, the first thing I ever wanted to do was get it out. So, Bridge Baptist Church, get the specks out. Get the logs out. Your eye will feel much better. Your whole life will feel much, much better. If you're here today, I want you to know Jesus Christ loves you, the God of the universe whose opinion is the only one that matters, 
He forgives you if you trust and repent in him. And the opinions of man compared to the opinion of God are very, very small and insignificant. Neither does Jesus condemn you. Go, go, and sin no more. Let's bow for a word of prayer.